a minimum of 25 years in prison. Gotti, always quick with a sound bite, had taunted the crowd of reporters who had flocked to the trial's opening day. I'll give you three to one I beat this rap. The state was offering persuasive evidence to prove that Gotti had ordered the shooting of a troublesome union official. There was even a tape recording of Gotti, wild with indignant rage, ordering the attack. Bust him up, put a rocket in his pocket. This day, America's most notorious gangster sat in the courtroom reading Nietzsche. He also, a clue to his steady mood, guarded a large and very valuable secret. He had an edge. The verdict was as good as guaranteed. When the trial adjourned for the day, things began to pick up at the Ravenite. Behar's camera had already caught Joe Butch Correo, lean and elegant, a silver-haired mafia prince, entering the club. Walking behind him, but rushing forward awkwardly at the last moment to grab the front door, was a bear of a man, George Helbig. Even through the camera lens he looked big and fat and mean. After only six minutes inside the club, the two men left. Helbig again held the door, but Salvatore Gravano, the Gambino family's underboss, now led the way. He was five foot six in his high-heeled boots, but he had been shooting $3,000 a week of decadurabolant steroids into his body for so long that he had beefed up to 175 pounds and had forearms nearly the size of beer kegs. That was one reason why people on the street called him Sammy Bull. The other was that he killed people. As soon as the three men began to walk up Mulberry, Behar reached for the walkie-talkie and spoke over the encrypted frequency. This is Coop. Number three is out and walking north toward Prince Street with two friends. The message was received by a female agent sitting in a tan Pontiac parked further downtown on Lafayette Street. It was the middle of a New York winter. She had never expected any of the boys to go for a walk-talk outside the club, unless, she realized, it was very important. Roger. She started the car's engine. Deep Street, as the Bureau's special projects group had christened their creation last fall, was ready to go operational for the first time. At just about that moment, across the East River, in a boxy office building along a stretch of Queens Boulevard, the red phone rang at the desk of Bruce Mao, the head of the FBI's Gambino squad, the C-16 team. It was the observation post above the billiard parlor calling to report that the curbside listening device would soon be activated. The news filled Mao with some anticipation. If the technical crew had managed to devise a strategy for eavesdropping on the Gambino family's conversations outside the Ravenite, when the mob least expected any electronic surveillance, the recordings could prove very interesting. After he was told that Gravano was accompanied by the unlikely pair of Joe Butch Correo and George Helbig, whatever calmness he still managed to convey on the phone was all disguise. For the past three years, Bruce Mao had lived with one large and controlling ambition, to bring down John Gotti. Gotti's invincibility had become the stuff of legends, the Teflon Don, the tabloids called him. Over the past three years, city and federal prosecutors had confidently hauled Gotti into the courtroom. Yet, at the conclusion of both cases, there was Gotti and his crew of feisty lawyers, their hands held high in victory like Olympic champions, posing for the television cameras. And today's image, Gotti smirking through his latest trial, a book coolly in hand, was just as indelible and infuriating. 
Mao was convinced that nobody was that smart or that lucky. Someone had to be feeding him information that was allowing him to get away, quite literally, with murder. Gotti, Mao had increasingly come to suspect, had a well-placed mole in law enforcement. In the past year, he had started to notice a coincidence that occurred with a tantalizing regularity. Each time a hint of the mole's handiwork surfaced, like magic, the incongruous duo of a capo and a gopher, Correo and Helbig, would appear in tandem at the Ravenite. So when the agent of the observation post asked Mao if he should telephone him at home to report on the results of the curbside device, Mao put on his terse commander's voice and said he would wait at his desk. Gotti's luck couldn't last forever. Or could it? The technical challenge of eavesdropping on the mob's walk-talks, Mao had glumly realized five months earlier, was a particularly complicated one. Still.